Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8 for our study this morning. Hebrews chapter 8. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We're thankful for the wonderful weather that you've been giving to us. Even more than that, we're thankful for your care for us. So God, would you speak to us afresh through your word? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? We know ultimately it's the Holy Spirit that brings about change. So we welcome you here, Holy Spirit. Have your way in us. Please set me aside and give me grace and strength in teaching your word. Pray that all your people would be blessed and encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Greater than. So apparently the patriots are greater than the Seahawks. Unfortunately. Greater than Mac is greater than PC. Yeah. Greater than Chipotle is greater than Quidoba. There's a few groans out there. Greater than jeans than slacks and dockers from my perspective. (laughs) What am I trying to do this morning? Just divide the church. I'm just trying to divide the church and cause the church split right here from the pulpit. Jesus is greater than the old covenant. Amen? That's what we're here to celebrate. That's what we're here to study is to learn about how Christ has brought us into the new covenant. So the important word to understand as we go through our time together is what in the world does covenant mean? It's a solemn agreement between two parties. We would often think of it as a contract. And in the Old Testament, God had an agreement with mankind, his solemn contract with mankind. If you were going to approach God, you would do it in this manner, and it was according to the law. It was a rules-based relationship with the Lord. If you do this, if you obey, there's blessing. If you disobey, then there's cursing. Christ brings us into a new covenant that's not based on our works. It's not based on our performance. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Salvation and blessing flow into our lives through the blood of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning is looking how Jesus is greater than the old covenant and has brought us into the new covenant. Let's begin our journey in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne, the majesty in the heavens. I love it when the scripture just comes out and says, this is the main point of the whole discussion, don't you? If you were here with us last week, we were talking about Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is an easy topic to get lost on. You may have been wondering, what is the main point? I was wondering that as well as I was going through that. And we get into chapter 8, and what do we find? Here's the main point. Here's the whole issue of Melchizedek, this priest from the Old Testament, as it points to Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. The position of Jesus that's given to us is that he's seated at the throne. Throughout the New Testament, every time, Christ is seen in this position, The only exception is when Stephen was martyred and Jesus stood up to welcome Stephen into his presence. Why would Christ be seated? Why would that be the position and the posture that he would want us to know? Because his work is finished. The work for salvation is complete. To be seated is a position of rest. 
It doesn't mean that Christ is inactive or he's passive, but he is in that place of completed work of what he has done for us. Now contrast this with the priests of the Old Testament. There was daily sacrifice, a lot of work that was, that was taking place. It wasn't a position of rest, but Christ is seated upon the throne. No matter what's going on in our lives, he's seated on the throne. No matter what mistakes that we've made this week, he's seated upon the throne. He's greater than our sin. Whatever situations that we're going through, he's seated on the throne. Next to the Father, next to the majesty of the Father. It's wonderful for us to imagine and contemplate the throne room of God. We got a little taste of that as we worshiped this morning. The great I am, hallelujah, holy, holy. The book of Revelations gives us a window into the throne room of God. The 24 elders, the angelic hosts, the nations that are gathered around who have known Christ as their savior. Someday we're gonna be at the throne room of God. Someday we're gonna see Christ in this position seated next to the Father. It's always difficult to lose a loved one in the Lord, to lose a, a close friend in the Lord, but how glorious for them. God says that precious in his sight are the death of the saints as he welcomes them into his presence. We have a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne. In verse two, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. As he's in the sanctuary, he's the minister. There's two titles of Jesus that are given to us in this chapter. The first is a minister. We've kind of puffed up this phrase, haven't we? What do you think of when you hear the word, word minister? It's fairly professional and it's official. Maybe you think of a, a priest or a pastor in his suit with his, his white collar. He's, he's a minister. But what does the word minister even mean? It's very simple. It's very direct. It's very practical. It's servant. That's what minister is. That's all a minister is, is a servant. And Jesus chose to be a servant. In his earthly life, the ultimate perfect servant, God in human flesh, looking not on his own needs, but the needs of others. Didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. He was the ransom for all. Many times we think of the ministry or the servanthood of Jesus Christ ending after his time on earth was done. Crucified, risen from the dead, ascending to the Father. But what does Hebrews 8, 2 tell us? He is currently ministering. He's continuing to serve in his heavenly ministry as making intercession for us. The end of chapter seven told us that Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. He's ever that advocate that's saying, I've paid for their sin, it, it's paid in full. He's lifting up the concerns and the needs and the brokenness in our lives. The place that's described of his ministry is the sanctuary, the true, true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. We'll read in a few more verses that the earthly tabernacle was a shadow or a copy of the throne room of God, of the heavenly tabernacle. The idea of God serving is mind-blowing, isn't it? Because you think of who God is. He's all-knowing, he's all-loving, he's all-present, he's all-powerful. He's just all-everything that you could possibly imagine, but yet he chooses to serve. Not only in his earthly life, but continually. We go on into verse three. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. The Old Testament points to who? Points to Jesus. 
All of these priests in the Old Testament pointed to Christ as the ultimate high priest. The Old Testament priests would offer gifts and sacrifices. There would be daily sacrifices that they would make. So it's safe for us to assume that Jesus is going to bring sacrifices as well. He's going to bring a gift. We'll see what his gift is as we continue. Verse 4, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. This is a radical statement if you're a Jewish Christian, and you've grown up under the law, and you're struggling with going back to the law, back to the old covenant, back to these earthly priests. And here, the author of Hebrews says this, if Jesus was here on the earth right now, you would not find him being a priest in the temple because... It's sacrifices according to the old covenant. And God has brought us into the new covenant. That's not the sacrifices that he brings. That's not the gift that he's given to us. In verse five, who served the copy and the shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown on the mountain. God had delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. They're traveling in the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land, modern day Israel. God speaks to Moses and says, I want you to build a tabernacle, a place that I'm going to meet with my people. If you read the book of Exodus, there's many chapters that are devoted to the minute detail of the tabernacle. The specific articles, what the curtain is made out of, the decorations on the articles, what the priests would wear. And if you're not careful, you're reading that going, I've lost my attention span a little bit. This is hard for me to to picture and hard for me to understand. Why is all of this detail in here? God doesn't waste words. He doesn't waste space because that earthly tabernacle was a copy or a shadow of the true tabernacle not made by men's hands but the throne room of God. So when we get to heaven and we're seeing the throne room of God, we're going to experience the reality of what this is a shadow from. So the priests are doing their things in the Old Testament and it's simply a shadow of the tabernacle where the ultimate priest is there ministering on our behalf. So you come to the mercy seat at the throne room of God, and you're like, I remember this. I remember this from the book of Exodus, where God met his people in mercy, and ultimately this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we get an idea. The tabernacle was glorious. The shadow points to the weight of the glory of God at the throne room. In verse 6, Now he's obtained a more excellent ministry. So in the tabernacle, the throne room of God, the heavenly tabernacle, Jesus has a more excellent ministry. He's got a superior ministry than that of the old covenant. The old covenant with the laws and the the daily sacrifice couldn't result in salvation, couldn't result in the transformation of hearts and minds. The law pointed out our sin, but the ministry of Jesus Christ provides salvation. It provides life change. On Wednesday night, we're going through the book of Romans. We're halfway through chapter 8. This Wednesday, Lord willing, we'll finish up chapter 8. And the two studies are really going together. Because Romans 8 teaches us how that the law could not provide salvation. And we read last week in chapter 7 that the law was weak and unprofitable. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is our sin. 
And the law couldn't solve the problem of sin. It points out sin, but Christ's ministry provides salvation. Inasmuch as he's also mediator of a better covenant, second title given to Jesus. He's the minister, but he's also the mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is someone who seeks to bring peace between two fractured parties. You've got father and son that are at odds with each other, mother and daughter. And someone may come alongside and say, hey, that's a really important relationship. That's the most, one of the most important relationships in life. We need to work this out. Sometimes you have husband and wife that are fractured and someone comes along and says, you know what, let's see if, if God will bring about peace in this situation. Sometimes a mediator is needed in business relationships, isn't there? You've got a disagreement that's taken place. Sometimes even in the body of Christ, there's fracture in churches and fracture in, in relationships and a peacemaker will come along. The ultimate mediator is Jesus Christ. He is our mediator because there's a fractured relationship between us and the Father. It's nothing on his part. There was no fault in the law. There's no fault in God. The problem's on us because of our sin. And so Jesus came to bridge that gap, to bring us into right relationship with the Father. However, it took a lot more than talking. It's not that Jesus could come and sit us down with the Father and say, hey, let's just talk this out. They, they got a sin problem. They, 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 they keep sinning. And the Father's over here going, hmm, well, you know, boys will be boys. And uh, girls, they'll, they'll be girls. And I know they didn't really mean to do it. They, deep down there, that, that wasn't their intent. So, oh, we'll forgive them and we'll give them everlasting life because then God wouldn't be just. In order for Christ to be the mediator, he had to die upon the cross. So high priests give sacrifice and gifts. Jesus is the ultimate high priest, so what's his gift? It's himself. And by giving himself, he brings us into the new covenant. When Jesus gave us communion, he said, this cup represents my blood, and it's the new covenant. The grace of God that God brings us into. That takes mediation into a whole nother level, doesn't it? To actually pay the price in order for there to be peace. First Timothy 2, verse 5 says, For there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, verse 15, And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Not all will be part of this inheritance. Not all will receive this mediation because it requires coming to Christ through faith. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not universalism. Jesus died on the cross so everybody's saved. Those who are saved are those who call upon Jesus Christ. Notice in verse six, it says a better covenant. Do you agree? This is much better than the old covenant. This is much better than having a relationship with God that's based on rules, regulation, and our performance. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, which was established on better promises. It's a better covenant, but it's also better promises. The old covenant, it's what you do that determines the blessing or the cursing. The new covenant, it's a better promise. It's based on the blood of Jesus Christ and our trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ. In verse seven, 
For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought out for a second. Isn't that true? If the law could provide salvation, could bring us right in relationship with God, then why would we need a second covenant? Why would we need a new covenant? And please understand as we go to verse eight, is it's not like this took God by surprise. Well, let's give them the law and let's see if they can fulfill these righteous requirements in order to be in my presence. Uh, looks like Israel just keeps messing up. They keep breaking the law. Well, we better come up with plan B. It's time for the new covenant. It was always God's plan to give his son. Scripture tells us Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. None of it took God by surprise. So why did he give us the old covenant, the first covenant? Because if we didn't have the law, our tendency would be to go to God saying, why don't you just give me some rules and I could do it. I can pull myself up by my boots. I, I can figure this out. And God knew our tendency, and so he says, okay, I'm gonna let you try it through the law to where you see your need for grace. You see your need for the new covenant. This is quoting from Jeremiah 31. It says, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. This promise was given during Israel's dark hour spiritually. They'd walked away from the Lord for generations in gross idolatry to the point of sacrificing their own children. And that's what we find at the beginning of verse eight, because finding fault with them. God sees their rebellion, the breaking of the old covenant. From human understanding, this would be the point where God would say, see you guys later. You broke my covenant. You're into all of these idols. You're sacrificing your children. I'm done. But instead, he says, the days are coming when I'm going to give the new covenant. Amazing, unconditional love of God. This promise, this prophecy was given 600 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. This covenant's for Israel, it's for the house of Judah, it's for all nations, Gentiles included. It's through this covenant that we come into relationship with God. Verse nine, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Couldn't be more clear. God says, this isn't according to the law. This isn't according to the first covenant that I gave. It's interesting, when God gave the law in Exodus, it was broken upon reception. <laughs> Moses goes to Mount Sinai, receives the law from the Lord. In fact, God even wrote down the 10 commandments on tablets of stone. Joshua is about mid-mountain on Mount Sinai. He's the assistant. He hears these crazy noises that are happening down below. He alerts Moses, sounds like war, but I don't think it's war. We better go check it out. What was taking place? Moses was gone. Israel got concerned. Knock on Aaron's door. Uh, could you make us a golden calf? Could you take all this gold jewelry that we got when we left Egypt? We want to worship this, this golden calf. Like, what in the world? Like, where does that come from? God just delivered them in a supernatural way. What's so offensive about it is they attribute God's deliverance to this golden calf. And they start bowing down and worshiping this, this golden calf, saying, this calf delivered us. And here comes Moses. He's all excited with God's message. Hey, here's the covenant in which God is going to deal with us. These are the commandments that we have to keep. It was already broken. 
before he even gave it to him. So what does Moses do? He throws down the commands and symbolic and saying, it's already been broken. 3,000 people died the day of the giving of the law. In the book of Acts, when God pours out his spirit in Acts chapter two, 3,000 people get saved. The work of the spirit is far greater than the work of the law. It was broken upon its deliverance. So here's the new covenant in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Continuing to quote Jeremiah 31. I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We're going to slow down and spend some time here in these last three verses. And if you're taking notes, we're gonna highlight four things. And if you're not, think these things through with me. They come right from our text. The new covenant is greater, number one, because it has greater inwardness. Greater inwardness. It's internal instead of external. Notice it says, my laws in their mind. In their mind. The law was primarily given in an external sense. It was written upon stone. It was written upon doorposts. God says, I want you to put my word on your doorposts. It was on foreheads, believe it or not. God says, I want you to take your word and and put it on your forehead and put it on your wrist. And so the nation of Israel will have phylacteries. It's actually this scripture box that's placed upon their head. That's pretty radical. It's pretty intense. What if you went for it in that way and just got three by five cards and you got a plastic box and you put that plastic box right on your head with some elastic that went around and people, what's that on your head? Is that some new kind of, you know, headlamp for, for nighttime use? You're like, no, this is the scriptures. And I'm, I'm dedicating the, the scriptures to, to, to my mind. And that's good. But What's even more important than it being in a box on my forehead or a wrist or on my doorpost, it's being in my mind. It's internal. It's actually gone in here. Our minds are really important because our thoughts become actions. Our actions become our character. Our character then results in consequences, doesn't it? So part of the new covenant is God reaching our minds, God renewing our minds, him transforming our minds through his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. When you came to know Christ as your savior, did your thoughts change a little bit? Not that we're perfect in our thought life, but did you find yourself thinking some things that you'd never considered before? Like, I should do this. I should go to church and be around God's people. Where did that come from? The Holy Spirit's working something in your mind. I need to go tell this person about Jesus and they need to know Christ their Savior. Where did that come from? You're there watching your TV, you're at the movies and all of a sudden you get this thought, I should not be here. This is not something I should be watching. This is not some movie I should, should be taking in. I've prayed with people to receive Christ as their Savior and then I've asked them, is there anything that I can pray for you? And in that moment, they've said, I was planning to go party with my friends and I'm really concerned about their, their salvation. Would you pray with me? And I'm not sure that I should head out tonight to do that because I'm not strong enough. I'm going, where in the world? How did that happen? They just prayed to receive Christ and we haven't had a chance to tell them all that yet. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's doing an inward work in their minds. And not only in our minds, but then also in our hearts where God begins to give us heart motivation. 
we all see the difference between motivation that's based on rules, religion, and regulation, and a heart that's been touched by the grace of God, where we're living out of appreciation for what he's done. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Growing up in my house, Saturday mornings as a teenager was chore day. And we would either mow the lawn or wash the car. My brother and I, we would rotate. You had the lawn one week and you had the car the next. And if you wanted to go out and play and do fun things, then you needed to get your chores done first. My dad's actually at this service, so he may remember it differently, but I remember. My mom and dad are right there. Well, I don't have a very good attention to detail. That may surprise you. I'm more of a big picture guy. So when it came my turn to wash the car, it was more like, whoop, 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 quick job, and I'm done. And here comes dad, who his work life was an engineer. So guess what? He gives close attention to detail, and he says, hey, uh, see this dirt here? See this dirt there? And why don't you just go ahead and wash the whole car over again? Why did I do it that way? Why was I washing the car in that manner? Because I could care less about the Ford Tour station wagon, right? It was a rule that I needed to fulfill. It was a good rule, but it was simply a rule. Then something changed around my birthday, my 16th birthday. I got my driver's license. That's a powerful piece of plastic in your pocket for a 16-year-old. That's a day you, you dream about. And I could actually go on a date where I was driving and going to go and pick this gal up in the car. I scrubbed that Ford Taurus like I'd never (laughs) scrubbed before. That baby was clean. It was vacuumed out. Yes, and it was an eight-seater. Do you remember the eight-seater Ford Tauruses where there's seats in the back that could look out the window, and you're saying, why would you care? Well, it was freedom on wheels, and I was going to clean that thing the best that I could. What changed in that? It's inward motivation. My little heart went, Butter, 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 butter. I want to have a clean car to take this gal on a date. And everything changes in our relationship with the Lord when he touches our heart. It's all he ever desired and longed for was faith where we trust in him and we love him with what? All of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. God, you love me. You've touched me with your heart. This is what I missed growing up as a kid going to church. I just saw the rules. I saw the regulations. And it wasn't until I came to know his grace, his forgiveness, that the have-tos became want-tos. It's a greater inwardness. And it's also a greater relationship. It says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Kent Hughes comments on this this way. I will be their God means he gives himself to us. And they will be my people means he takes us to himself. I will be their God. They shall be my people. God's saying, you belong to me. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. You're my church. You're you're my bride. I give myself to you. God has given himself to us. I'll be your people. The relationships that God describes is one that he's our father, we're his children. Also, that he's the bridegroom and we're the bride. Ephesians 5 tells us that every Christian marriage illustrates and points to this mystery of how Christ loves the church and how we respond to Christ. We have the relationship of a shepherd and sheep. 
Jesus is our good shepherd and we hear his voice. All powerful relationships. And relationships go much further than rules ever could. I saw this at the father-daughter dance Friday night. We had 500 here, sold out, dads and, and daughters. And when dads are with their daughters, it's pretty much just butterfest is what happens. I mean, you should have seen us dads hanging out with our daughters, and we're just all mushy inside. And I get together with you guys in other fashions and other settings. We, we go to men's retreats together, and then, hey, what's up? Hey, how you doing? You know, yeah, this is pretty cool. Yeah, you know, the food's not quite as good as last year. We're doing our man thing. And then we get around our daughters and just, we're just, just melted. And I have three daughters and one son and I'm with my three daughters and then they do, you know, they start to do the slow dance where you're slow dancing with, with, with your daughters and all of a sudden all you can think about is this, this little girl's gonna grow up and get married. I hate that thought. I'm gonna <laughs> punch that kid in the face, you know? And all of a sudden your eyes start sweating and you're like, what's going on with my eyes, you know? What's happening here? I'm feeling something. Why is that? Because there are daughters. It's relationship, isn't it? They're ours. And there's that mutual giving of ourselves to one another. And that's what the Lord intends. That's what he brings us into in this new covenant. It's greater relationship. There's probably rules that you keep in your marriage if you're married. I would hope so. Some proper boundaries. But why do you keep them? Is it because that's the law of marriage? I hope not. I hope it's out of relationship. And it's the same way with the Lord. Greater knowledge. This is the third thing. Greater knowledge. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is an explosion of the knowledge of God. The scripture is saying the new covenant is going to bring in such a knowledge of Jesus Christ where you don't need to go to your neighbor. You don't need to go to your family member and say, know the Lord, because they know the Lord. Because the grace of God has touched and changed their life. Wouldn't it be such a wonderful thing if everybody in Colorado Springs was reached? If everybody had this, this knowledge and the church collectively, corporately could say, well, it's time to move on to another city because this city is reached. And so this verse talks about this greater knowledge, this, this explosion that the new covenant brings us into. John 17 verse three says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What's eternity gonna be all about? Eternal life? knowing God in a greater way. There's gonna be more and more to know about God for all of eternity, and we get to begin in that journey right now. The law couldn't do this. The law didn't bring us into this kind of knowledge. This is a knowledge that came through the new covenant. The new covenant was given corporately. It was given to God's people as they gathered in a sense like this, but how do we come into the new covenant? one person at a time as you trust in Jesus Christ as your savior. You can't come into the new covenant corporately. You can't be the child of God because you go to Rocky Mountain Calvary. You can't be the child of God because you grew up in a, in a Christian family. It's something that you enter into by faith and trusting Jesus Christ as your savior. It's a personal decision that we make. We celebrate it together corporately, but we choose that decision individually. In verse 12, the fourth thing to consider about the new covenant is its greater forgiveness. 
For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Mercy for unrighteousness, not remembering sin and rebellion and lawlessness. How can God be merciful to unrighteousness and still be holy and still be just? F.F. Bruce says it's because his grace has determined to forgive them not in spite of his holiness, but in harmony with it. The reason that God can be merciful to our unrighteousness is because Jesus Christ, his blood, was shed for the penalty of our sin. If it wasn't paid for, God couldn't forgive it, but because it is paid for, God gives mercy and forgiveness for our unrighteousness and our rebellion. Notice the end of verse 12. I will remember no more. God chooses in his divinity as God to have forgetfulness. He chooses to not remember our sin for his own sake, to not be a, a barrier between us and the Lord. Some people have amazing memories, don't they? And we get kind of envious of them. I remember in Bible college, Pastor Chuck Smith, he came and taught a chapel out of Mark chapter 2. And he started the first Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. And he sat on a stage much like this and he just sat down and he had his Bible next to him and he said, open your Bibles to Mark chapter two, which he would often do, always teaching from the scriptures expositionally. But I'm watching closely and he never opened his Bible. It's just sitting there next to him and he went to teach the whole chapter verse by verse from memory. He had Mark chapter two memorized do you know how hard it is to just quote Mark chapter 2 if you just started and said go and went all the way through it? But what if you quoted verse 1 and then had to teach on it? Quoted part of verse 2 and had to teach on it? That's how well that he had it memorized. Hank Hennegraff, one time I heard him speak and he did the same thing. Except for he did the whole Sermon on the Mount. The whole thing. Five, six, and seven. He had it memorized well enough where he could stop and teach on it at the same time. I, I was slaughtered with memory envy. You know, I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. These guys have phenomenal memories. God's much greater, doesn't he? He doesn't miss anything. He doesn't forget anything. But he chooses to forget our sin because in the new covenant, he's removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. The east and the west never meet. It's a declaration of God, of our forgiveness. Do we really believe this about God? Do we believe this truth that he doesn't remember? Because our personal experience a lot of times is we sin, we mess up, we feel broken, we go to God and ask for forgiveness. And then five minutes later, we ask for forgiveness again. And five minutes later, we ask for forgiveness again. Three days have gone on and we're still in guilt and shame and condemnation, begging God to forgive us. And what's his response? I don't know what you're talking about. I forgave you. I've removed it from you. I don't hold that against you any longer. It's an amazing attribute of God in the new covenant and it's a greater forgiveness. It's something the old covenant couldn't do. The old covenant covered sin, but it didn't remove sin. Maybe you're having kind of a bad day or a bad morning. That happens, doesn't it? I had a morning like that this week. I just woke up, was kind of in a fog, and no amount of coffee could cure it. <laughs> I needed to meet with the Lord. Maybe you're having one of those days. Here's some good news for you. You're forgiven if you're in Christ Jesus to the point where God doesn't even remember. All that stuff that you're beating up on yourself for, 
it's forgiven by, by the Lord. Verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already vanished away. Do you think God wants us trying to relate to him through our own works, through the law, trying to earn his blessing and favor? No. He wants us fully dependent upon the new covenant of Jesus Christ. We've seen that Jesus, he's our minister in the sanctuary. He's serving on our behalf in the sanctuary. He's the mediator of a better covenant. And as we close this morning, this is my prayer for all of us, is that we would encounter grace. Because it's one thing to teach it. It's one thing to read it. It's one thing to intellectually understand it. And it's another thing to really encounter God's grace. The gospels are filled with people meeting Jesus in his grace. I want to tell you a few. One was a woman who was caught in adultery. And at this time in Israel, to be caught in adultery and sexual sin was a huge deal. It's not like our culture at all. In fact, they were under the law. And if you were caught in adultery, you were to be stoned to death. And men and women had that happen to them. So they bring this woman, the scribes and the Pharisees. They've worked hard to catch her in adultery, to set a trap for Jesus. What's he going to do? He's a Jew. He's a rabbi. He knows the law. Here's this woman who's now humiliated in front of Jesus Christ. Jesus looks at her. And then he does something that's very unique. He looks over at the men, begins to write in the dirt. He doesn't say anything. There's a lot of dirt in Israel. We don't know what he's writing. But the oldest from the youngest left. Jesus asked them a question. He says, he of you that's without sin, you cast the first stone. We come to understand Jesus was probably triggering some memories of sin that these men have made. Maybe he wrote down a woman's name. Maybe he wrote down a street. Maybe he wrote down a date. He wrote down a thought. And all of a sudden, these men realized that they couldn't bring condemnation upon this woman. Looks into the woman's eyes. Says, woman, where are your accusers? They've gone. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declares. Go your way and sin no more. That's an encounter with grace. Jesus could have said, hey, let's get back to the Ten Commandments. Thou shall not commit adultery. Do you think that woman knew that? Absolutely. She's a Jew. She understands that. She willfully disobeyed that. But that's not what Jesus took her to. He took her to grace. What do you think her life looked like after that? Transformed, changed. Do you think she went back to sexual sin? I don't think so. Another man named Levi. Now, that's a pretty strong biblical name. If you've been studying with us through Hebrews, you know, with a name like that, you should be what? You should be a priest. Instead, what's Levi doing? He's a tax collector for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is ripping off God's people. He enters into this life of being a thief. If someone owed $500, he'd charge him 1000 and keep 500 for himself. Jesus only picks 12 men to spend every day with him. Only 12 out of everybody on the planet. Jesus walks by. Levi, who's also named Matthew, says, Matthew, follow me. That's a ridiculous choice. If you're going to choose 12 people 
as your disciples to be partners with you in ministry, the ones that you're going to leave the ministry to, who would you pick? Probably not Matthew. You're, you're a real big liability here, buddy. I don't, I don't know how this is, this is going to work out. Why don't you go get some counseling and work some things through, and when you get your act together, then you can follow me. What did Jesus say? Right now. Come on, follow me. And Matthew took him up on it. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter where you're at, whatever your table of sin is, and you're thinking, God couldn't call me, God couldn't use me, Jesus is looking you right in the eye and he's saying, follow me, it's an encounter with grace. Peter, we love Peter. Some grace was needed in his life. Classic, always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, filled with pride, it came to its fullest in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was sleeping when he should have been praying, decides to follow Christ from a distance. Jesus is on trial, he's warming himself by the enemy's fire denies the Lord, denies the Lord again, denies the Lord a third time, this time cursing that he never knew the Lord. The rooster begins to crow. Jesus told him, he predicted, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Before this new day begins, you'll deny me three times. In that moment, Jesus looks over at Peter as the rooster crows What was the look on Jesus' face? Was it one like this? (laughs) You know? I think it was one of love. It was one of grace. Because Jesus' actions showed that. Peter was undone. He wept. He couldn't handle it. Christ went and died for Peter. Christ went to provide the new covenant for Peter. He rose again. Peter's frustrated. He's disillusioned. Goes back to what's comfortable, what he knows, what he's done his whole life, and that's fishing. Gets some of the other disciples to go. The only problem is Jesus had called him out of fishing. He was supposed to be a fisher of men. Christ gets up early, goes to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is beautiful. It's this large mass of water, beautiful sunrises. Jesus begins to cook, cook some breakfast, cook some fish, cook what Peter was longing for all along. Have you found what you're looking for is at the feet of Jesus? Peter toils all night and catches nothing. Jesus calls out from the shore, hey guys, why don't you try the other side? Hard to receive advice when you're fishing, isn't it? Especially advice like that. What difference is it gonna make on the other side? But they do it. And they catch 153 fish, John 21 tells us. John the disciples goes, this sounds familiar. Something's a little bit fishy here. (laughs) It's the Lord. This is Jesus. And as soon as he says that, Peter's hooked. He jumps in and he swims to the Lord. What did Jesus say to Peter? Come and dine. Come have breakfast with me, Peter. Doesn't rebuke him doesn't beat up on them, doesn't say how could you, provides breakfast. We have to understand in the Middle Eastern culture to eat is to show oneness. They were being unified in that moment. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Right there, right there on the spot, Peter becomes the first pastor of the first church. Peter, 
after he'd blown it in such a great way, what happened to Peter? He encountered grace. So would you pray with me and let's allow the Lord to touch us with his grace. Father, we thank you for your grace. We read a lot about it. We share it. Many of us know it in our minds. But God, would we experience it through the power of your spirit this morning? We, we each need your grace in different areas of our lives. It's so easy to go back to an old covenant relationship where we think everything's dependent upon us and our works. We want to come to experiencing your grace. Would you move through the power of your spirit?